Over the last few weeks, we have been traveling through the Gospel of Mark, thinking together about who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Mark's Gospel centers upon that question, wondering who Jesus is. Perhaps this morning you come wondering maybe perhaps who Jesus is. Maybe you've been a Christian for some time and and, uh, you've never really given thoughtful attention to perhaps what you believe about Jesus, uh, what his identity is. And so when you perhaps uh, read or uh, recite together as we did today uh, the Apostles' Creed, you kind of wonder, you know, why would anyone ever write that? What's the need to have that? Well, the reason we have creeds like that Uh, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, things like those, is because historically Christians have been confused about who Jesus is, about what Jesus came to do, and how one has a relationship with God through Jesus. And so it's important that as Christians, we can give that answer when someone asks us, who is Jesus, right? So if someone asks you, you know, who is Jesus? Who is this guy that you worship? Who is this God that you give praise to? Well, my prayer is that you would give a sufficient answer, not from your own understanding or your own words, but that you might go to the Scriptures, might open up the Gospel of Mark, and might see, well, this is who Jesus is. He is a man, but He's also fully God, and He came to save sinners like me. Well, let's... Open God's Word this morning, so I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, page 843 in the Pew Bibles, the Black Pew Bibles, 843. If you're not familiar with looking at God's Word, the large numbers, chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I know that not everyone is familiar, so just in, we've been looking over the last few weeks in Mark's Gospel thinking about faith and unbelief. Mark has given us narrative stories about Jesus' encounter with very different people. So last week we saw a Syrophoenician woman, a a woman who was not a Jew. So up to this point in the Gospel, Jesus has really been dealing with uh, the nation of Israel, with ethnic Jews. He's been sharing the Gospel with them and, and telling them about the Kingdom of God and how He's the Savior of the world and how He will deliver them Uh, from their sin and from the wrath of God. And and he turns and he begins to share the gospel with Jews, or non-Jews, with with Gentiles. So if you're not familiar with what a Gentile is, um, that would be probably you if you're not a Jew. So if you are uh, an ethnic Jew, then you're not a Gentile. But if you are just just an average old person, uh, you're probably Gentile like me. And, uh, and so this is wonderful news for us. This is good news uh, that the gospel isn't only for one people, but it's for all people. It's for all people, all tribes and tongues. And, and Jesus in his ministry was regularly confronted by the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders uh, their names were Pharisees, and, and Pharisees were, were men who were knowledgeable about the law. They were teachers. They were the ones who would, who would you know, preach sermons or, or share messages from God's Word for the people. And, and Jesus constantly was confronting them over their wrong understanding about who God is and about who the Messiah was to be. 
And much of what we find today in Mark's gospel in our passage is, is again, that same wrong understanding about who God is. And we also see, then, really different types of faith. That is, different types of belief, different types of trust. A, a way to trust God that really doesn't even, isn't really even trust at all. It's, it's rather a trust in, in ourselves, in our own understanding of things. Or what we can see also is a, it's a sort of a slow faith, a, a slow trusting. Where perhaps maybe you are today, uh, maybe feeling the pain uh, or maybe the struggle of sin. Maybe you just don't feel very Christian today. Maybe you've come this morning and you feel like, you know, this week has just been a really rough week in my walk with God. I just don't feel much uh, like a Christian. I don't feel very faithful this week. Well, well you're going to encounter a, people, or a group of people that are just like you and just like me who struggle in their faith. Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, when a, again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. And having given them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set it before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that they should be set before the people. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And he immediately got into the boat and his disciples and went to the district of Dalmunatha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he strictly, and he, excuse me, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again and he went to the other side. What do we understand about Jesus in this passage? What do we understand about Jesus? Who is Jesus? How is Jesus revealed to his disciples in this passage? When we think about this passage, I think it's helpful just to kind of think about who's there. Who actually saw this miracle? Remember, Mark is writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians trying to convince them about Jesus. He's writing to Christians. And so this morning, this passage is, is very, very informative for Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, this still is a word for you, uh, an encouraging word of God's grace. But this word is a particular word about God's power, God's power, and about our faith. God's power and our faith. How God's power is a means by which we can trust Him more. We see in this passage, central to our understanding, is that Jesus is the Son of God. This is what Mark has been laboring to, for us to understand, that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Redeemer who has come to rescue not just the Israelites, 
but also the nations. Remember that Jesus fed 5,000 people. So you might be thinking, well, is this like the same story just kind of retold? Like, maybe this is just a mistake. Maybe it's supposed to be 5,000, but, you know, Mark wrote down 4,000. Maybe it's really just the same story told from a different angle. That's how some have taught to try to understand this. Why are there two big feedings like this? Are they the same? Are they different? If you look in your Bibles back to chapter 6 and verse 30, we're told by Mark that uh, Jesus fed 5,000 people. He fed 5,000 people. And I think helpful in our understanding this passage is to kind of compare and contrast the two feedings. To kind of see how he fed the 5,000 and then how he fed the 4,000. And by looking at that, I hope we'll come to the conclusion that, well, these are two separate things, and Jesus is teaching do two different things through uh, these feedings. First off, we see who the audience is. In the first feeding, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is in a Jewish region. He's in an area of Israel which was made up of mainly or predominantly Jews. So not a Gentile neighborhood, okay? Um, And so we see that in the first feeding, he's feeding Jews. But then in the second feeding, he's feeding Gentiles, or mainly Gentiles. Jesus is in a region where it's predominantly a Gentile. They're in the Decapolis area, which is, Decapolis is basically ten cities. In the ten cities, right there in that neighborhood, that's where Jesus is feeding. And most of the people living there are Gentiles. And so you might think, well, what's the point here? What's happening? Well, we're going to see in a moment that Jesus is showing his disciples something about the kind of ministry that they're going to be doing. Remember, Jesus is radically transforming the way they're thinking. Their thinking has been Jew only, Jew only. But God is radically transforming that the message of the gospel is not for Jews only, but for the nations. So we see first the audience. Secondly, we see in both accounts that what propels Jesus to do the miracle is his compassion. In the first miracle, we're told in verse 34 of chapter 6, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus hearkened on Old Testament language of shepherds. Shepherds were, were figurative uh, usage, uh, it was a figurative usage for the leaders of the Israelite people. And Jesus is saying that I am going to be the great and grand shepherd who will shepherd my people well. I'm the good shepherd, John tells us. And so we see that he has compassion on them. He has care for them. He loves them. But we see also with the Gentiles, Jesus also has compassion. In chapter 8 and verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd. I care for this crowd. And we see then in the feeding of the 4,000, what propelled him wasn't that they were sheep without a shepherd. In this account, we see that it was they've been with me three days now. So in the feeding of the 5,000, they'd only been there a day. In the feeding of the 4,000, they'd been there three days without anything to eat. This was a a desperate situation. (laughs) You could title this Desperation uh, in 
desolation, right? I mean, they were in, there's no fast food restaurants for them to go to, right? No buffets to take the crowd to. His disciples are very clear, there's nothing here, Jesus. What do you want us to feed him with? There's, there's nothing. We can't do it. Oh, we got, what do you got? We got these seven, we got seven little loaves of bread, but how are we going to feed 5,000 people or 4,000 people with that? And so we see that this was a desperate and serious situation. Jesus says as much. He says, hey, here's the deal. If I send them away, verse 3, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Jesus recognizes, look, this is an impossible situation. He's heightening for his disciples. He's heightening for us how serious this was. This wasn't just no casual matter. If he would have sent them away, they might have died. Three days without food is a serious problem. And in a place where there's no fast food, that's a really serious problem. So Jesus comes here in the midst of that. And he comes and he says, how many, what do you have? What what do you have? How many loaves do you have? And we're told in the feeding of the 4,000 that he has seven loaves. Notice in the feeding of the 5,000, he has 12. He has 12, excuse me, they found five and two fish. I don't know why I said 12. That's what they had left over. Uh, They had five and two fish. So Jesus takes five loaves in the feeding of the 5,000 and seven loaves in the feeding of the 4,000. All of this, I'm trying to just emphasize that these two things are completely different stories and therefore two completely different events in the life of Jesus' ministry. Jesus fed a group of people, and he fed another group of people. This isn't the same group. We see also in the feeding of the 5,000, the problem with the disciples was they had no faith. They didn't have any money. Right? They said, Jesus, hey, 200 denarii. You know, a year's wages would not pay for enough food for, to feed these 5,000 people. For them, it was a problem of resources, financial resources. In the second, in the second telling, in the telling of the 4,000, we see the problem is, is that they cannot see a solution to the problem. For them, their dullness to see the power of God at work, they, they, they couldn't see, they, they had fuzzy faith, as we're going to see next week. They, 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 they were, they were kind of confused about who Jesus was. Now we would think, as we're, as we're reading this, and I, and I had a little note I made this week, you know, we, we can so... Attack. We, can, we can just jump on these disciples so quickly. And it's just like, hello, are you an idiot? Why, how come you can't figure this out? This is so easy. Jesus fed 5,000 people. Clearly he's going to be able to feed these people. What's your problem, disciples? Get with it. What's the deal? And we can read the Bible that way. And we can forget that, that we are so slow uh, to trust in Jesus just like they are. Well, we can be so slow that in the midst of, uh, of trial, in the midst of difficulty, we forget about the power of God displayed in our past. How God has proven himself to be faithful time and time again in your life. Just like he was with the disciples, so he is with us. He comes and he meets needs. He comes and he sees the needs of the people and he meets them. He's ready and willing to meet them. He doesn't withhold blessing from them, but he meets the need that they have and he comes. In the telling of the 5,000, we see that he tells them to sit in groups 
uh, on green grass in the second, and the telling of the 4,000, he just tells them to sit down. He doesn't tell anything about where to sit or how to sit. In the telling of the 5,000, Jesus has 12 baskets left over. Little baskets left over. In the telling of the 4,000, he's got seven baskets. But the word for baskets there isn't like a small basket, but it's a hamper. Right? He had seven hampers full of, 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 of loaves left over. I mean, you want to talk serious leftovers, right? <laughs> right? Your grandmother, or maybe your grandmother, is like Jesus in this way, right? You ever, you know, like family meals, right? A good family meal is when you have leftovers, right? That's the best family meal. You can have those leftovers. You ever go to grandma's house, right? She's always trying to give you something, always trying to send you away with something, always, always leftovers to take home. Right? It's a picture of abundance. It's a picture of of the abundant blessing that God gives to his people. God will always have enough for you. No one goes hungry in these stories. No one goes without. Everyone is filled. Everyone is fed. Everyone is satisfied. What is striking about this is in the telling of the 5,000, we're told that there was 5,000 men. In the telling of the 4,000, we're told in verse 9, and there was about 4,000 people. Now Mark, or excuse me, Matthew, in his, his telling of the same narrative, he says there was 4,000 men plus women and children. And that's what Mark is saying. There's about 4,000 men plus women and children. There's a lot of folks there that day. This is no small crowd that's amassed there to be fed by Jesus. Central to our understanding of this is the audience. It's who's watching. And God is so gracious to his disciples. And he's showing them. He's showing them who he is. He's revealing to us who Jesus is. And the kind of Messiah he has come to be. So what do we see? What does this reveal about Jesus? What does Jesus reveal about himself to his disciples and to us in this passage? First, we see that Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. You can't read these stories of the feedings of the 5,000 in desolate places and not have in the background of your mind the feeding of manna in the wilderness in the Exodus story, in Exodus. So if you just want to like kind of get a better understanding of this passage, go today, read Exodus, read about how God rescued his people from slavery and how he provided for them, and then look at how they rebelled against him. Because we're going to see that rebellion in just a moment, just like the Israelites rebelled in the feedings, in the wilderness. So we see the Pharisees come and reject God, rebel against Him. It's a, it's a complete retelling of the Exodus. This is the new Exodus. This is the new and better Moses has come in Jesus Christ. He's the true bread of heaven. He is the source of life. He's the way to relationship with God. We see secondly... That Jesus is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. I just want to keep stressing that. That seems central to this passage. And understanding that Jesus has come to the nations. 
And friends, if we understand our Bible well, we understand that this isn't new. <laughs> this isn't plan B for God. God, Jesus isn't like plan B, like, you know, plan A with the Israelites. Well, that kind of fizzled out. That didn't work well. You know, put that to the side. And, uh, well, I just got to do it myself. No, 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 no. That's not what's happening here. You see, in, in Genesis, when God calls Abram, he tells Abram that he will be a light to the nations. That all the nations of the world will be blessed through him, through his seed. And Paul picks up on that in Galatians and he says, that seed is Jesus. Jesus is the light to the nations. That the message of reconciliation, that the message of redemption has come to all people. So that all people are saved through the name of Jesus. This doesn't mean that all will be saved. We don't believe in some form of universalism where all people somehow make their way to heaven. We reject that. We believe that those that are genuinely saved are those who have an understanding of the gospel. That is that God is a holy God. That God has created us in His image and that we're accountable to Him because we're created by Him. Just like your children are accountable to you and not your neighbor, and so we're accountable to God because He created us. He's the Father of all people, right? He created all people. And so we're accountable to Him, but the Bible tells us that we rebelled against God. That Adam and Eve rebelled and they wanted to live life their own way. They, they wanted to be God. Because of their sin, they were cast away from God's presence. Unholy people can't hang around a holy God. There's nothing to do. And friends, I just want to say right now, you, you would not have fun in heaven uh, if you want to be unholy. <laughs> unholy people won't have fun in heaven uh, because it's all about holiness and godliness and His glory. But man rebelled. And because of our rebellion... God has sentenced all of us to, to eternal death. Sin has, has condemned us. Sin has sentenced us to death. But God in His grace sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, came and lived a perfect life. The life you and I should have lived. The life we should have lived in honor and in, in obedience to God. Jesus lived that life for us on our behalf. Jesus not only lived a perfect life, but he also died for our sins. He died the death our sins deserved. So that all those who will repent of their sins and trust in him would be saved. And what's great is the resurrection of the fact that he got up from the dead three days later vindicates that all he did was accomplished. That's the gospel. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I invite you to believe that gospel. You too can be saved if you put your faith and trust in Christ. If you turn from your sins and trust in him. So the message is not only for Jews, but for the Gentiles. Thirdly, we see... That his provision will always satisfy and be abundant. Oh friend, do not miss the richness of God's grace. 
the richness of God's grace in Christ. That He provides, hallelujah, but that His provision is satisfactory. In the telling of the 5,000, the crowd was satisfied. In the telling of the 4,000, the people were satisfied. If you go to Jesus, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied in Christ. The longings that we have in our hearts can only find satisfaction in God. We can long after a lot of things in life. Maybe it's a better home. Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's a better job. Maybe it's a better family. Maybe it's like, let's start over. Let's get a new family. This one's just not working out for me, right? And we can do a lot. We can long for perfection in an imperfect world, but only find satisfaction in Christ. Christ is the only satisfier. He's the only one that can quench your thirst and feel feed your hunger. He is the only way to do that. And as Christians, we can so easily and subtly give ourselves to be satisfied in other things rather than finding satisfaction in Christ. And so we see that all His provisions are enough. They're sufficient. Do you find Christ sufficient today? Do you find Him enough for you today? Or are you constantly looking for something else? Do not believe the lie that Satan is telling you. Only Christ can satisfy you. So we see the disciples are central to understanding this, but what about the Pharisees? What about these Pharisees that come and confront Jesus? What's going on with them? What is their deal? Look with me again at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I tell you, say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of this account of the Pharisees coming? Well, I think one overarching thing that we need to understand by this passage is that the Pharisees wanted a Messiah that Jesus wasn't. Jesus wasn't the God they were looking for. Jesus wasn't the the Savior that they had longed for. They had in their minds an understanding of who the Messiah would be that was so far from what the truth of of God's Word said. What they wanted was a king who would free them from their Roman occupation. That's what they wanted. They just wanted to be free in a temporal sense. They misunderstood about the timing of God's deliverance from this world. They put more trust in getting out of the world or getting out of trouble than they did about just persevering through trial. And we see in the midst of this this question of faith about what we believe about what we trust. And we see two examples. We see that that slow trust, and we see the settled unbelief of the Pharisees. This morning, I want you to kind of think about those two groups, a slow and steady trust in Christ, and a settled unbelief. The Pharisees are those who are settled in their unbelief. 
They don't come seeking signs from heaven. Though they say that that's what they want, oh no, they came to test Jesus, we are told. They are settled, they come. Notice what he says in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. You see, the the purpose of their coming wasn't to see a sign. Their purpose was to trap him. As the King James just tempt him, came to tempt Jesus. Just like Satan wanted these grand things in the wilderness, so the Pharisees come and want some grand signs from heaven. And you know what? That That is weak faith. That is some weak faith to have to constantly see in order to believe. What does the Bible say genuine faith is? What does the Bible say about faith? Consider a few passages this morning. First, Hebrews 11, probably one of the most famous uh, verses or chapters in all the Bible about faith. I encourage you today that you talk about faith with your spouse or with some friends here. Just gather around today and, and talk about this passage. Talk about faith. Maybe perhaps talk about how your faith is has gone up and down over the years. Listen what the author of Hebrews says, faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That is, faith isn't about what you see. It takes no faith to believe in something you can see. It's right, I'm like, I have a hand. Look at it, it's right here. doesn't take much faith to believe it. It's right here in front of me, right? I believe it. It's there. I have faith in it. I have faith that it's going to be there when I raise my hand up, right? It's going to be there because I see it. Genuine faith is hoping in what you don't see. It's about trust. Philip Jensen recently uh, said that trust is a better word for faith in the English language. And I think he's right. The reason he argues that is because faith is a word that's watered down in our usages. We talk about, you know, having faith or we're faithful people or uh, I'm a part of the faith. You know, we just kind of use it in various ways. And and often with words, what happens is is we have to kind of explain them, right? So we use a word often. We have to kind of explain, well, this is what I mean. This is what I don't mean. So Yvonne and I were talking earlier about uh, creeds. We were talking about how, you know, what's really helpful. I was going to share with you, you know, what's really helpful about creeds is when you have affirmations and denials, right? Affirmations and denials are really helpful because you can affirm, this is what I mean, and you can deny. You can say, this is not, this, I don't mean this, right? So I'm going to be clear. This is what I believe, and this is what I don't believe. And we have to do that with faith. Faith's one of those words. But, but trust, Jensen said, is a word that, that is, a, is a good synonym, because it communicates pictorially what Jesus is calling for. Trust or reliance. You're relying on Jesus. You're trusting in Jesus. You're trusting that the gospel's true. That when you go to heaven and you stand before God, he's not going to cast you away. That he's going to welcome you because of his son. Because of Jesus. That's what faith is. It's it's trusting. It's relying. And so what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples is what genuine faith is. And Jesus often does it 
by showing us the negative, showing us the the settled unbelief of the Pharisees as a sign, as a reminder of what faith isn't. Faith isn't a means to test God. And perhaps that's you today. Maybe you're like that in your relationship with God. God, I'll believe you if you do this. You have conditions on your belief. God, I'll trust you if you'll answer this prayer. God, I'll believe in you if you heal my son. God, I'll trust you. I'll be, I'll, I'll be a better Christian, I promise. You know, like pleading children. I promise I'll be better if you give me a new job. I promise, I promise. You know, we, we're putting our trust in results rather than on what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Faith is settled in Christ. So we see that these men have a spiritual blindness. They cannot see. Their wicked and sinful hearts are made up. They have no room for Christ. And Christ has no room for them. He leaves. Friends, don't just take verse 13 as just a transition point in the narrative. No, no, no. He's very emphatic. He gets up and walks away. And this is a warning that today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. The Bible always puts the emphasis on today. Today is the day to be faithful. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't, don't make excuses. Well, I'll do this, you know, when this happens, with all this lines up, I'll, and then, then I'll be... No, no, no. Today is the day to trust Christ. Today is the day to go all in on Him. Because he could get up and walk away. As he does to those. Jesus is very clear. He will not throw pearls to pigs. He will not waste his time with people who don't have time to listen. And friend, if you're that this morning. If you are so settled in your heart. Just pray that God would soften your heart today. That you would just take and consider Use your mind and and think about these things and how true they are and believe that Christ has compassion for you. He loves you as a sinner. He died for you that He might redeem you. Jesus tells them that no sign will be given. No sign. I'm not giving you. He he has it. It's like an oath formula. He says, no, no sign. I, I will be. It ain't happening. That's what he said. It ain't happening. I'm never giving you a sign. Now, in Matthew's account of this, Matthew records that Jesus says, except for the sign of Jonah. That is, I will give you a sign, but I'll give you the sign of Jonah. You may think, well, what the, what's the sign of Jonah? Like fish and stuff? Like fish story? What's that? The definitive sign that God has given for our trust and for our faith is the resurrection from the dead. Just as Jonah, Jesus says, was three days in the belly of that great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the tomb three days and then raised from the dead. The sign of God's faithfulness The sign that Jesus is who He's claimed to be 
is the resurrection. So our trust is in the fact that Jesus got up. This is why we, we don't just celebrate the resurrection on Easter. <laughs> we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. Because every Sunday we celebrate the sign, the proof that Jesus is real. And that we too can be with God. That we don't need to fear death. That we don't need to come and, and worry about the future. Our future is settled in Christ. And we trust in Him. Friends, all of this reminds us why we need one another. Jesus is showing us the need for other Christians. There is no room in Christianity for lone rangers. You will die in the wilderness without other Christians. I tell you that. And I just... We need the community of God's people to help us persevere in our faith. If we don't have people telling us that we are being unfaithful like Jesus does in the feeding of the 5,000 for his own disciples, we are without hope. We need other Christians. This is why we need to be in intimate relationship with other Christians. Not just passively, hey, how you doing? How's the weather? It's good. How are the kids? Oh, they're fine. Grandkids are doing well. All that kind of stuff. No, we need to go deeper in our conversations with one another. We need to ask, how are you doing? How is life? Are you okay? Are you, do you want to give up? Do you want to quit? Are you ready to throw in the towel on this Christianity thing? Are you ready to strangle your children? Are you ready to leave your wife? Where are you in life? How can Christ help you? How can I minister to you? We are not helping anyone when all we do is pat each other on the back and encourage each other each week. That is not helping anyone. Because, you know, we can put a grand little smile on in here, but guess what? Inside, we're weeping, we're broken, we're sorrow, we're going to cry on the way home because our life is a mess. And so also, we need to be open. We need to be willing to live our lives transparently before others. To be willing to come in and say, you know what, my life is a mess. I'm ready to leave my wife. I'm ready to leave my husband. I, I'm done with this, these children. I'm, I'm done with all of this. I'm ready to call quits on the whole thing. We need to be honest. And then we need to take the salve, the, the ointment of God's Word and His Gospel and the promises that we've considered as the medicine for our souls. We need to be, as Paul Tripp says, instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We need to be men and women who are willing to not only live vulnerable lives, but actually live life together in a community. Friends, I'll just tell you this. That kind of intimate relationship I just described can't happen when you only see each other twice a week for two hours maybe. That's not genuine. We need to live lives we need to rub shoulders. We need to be vulnerable in our homes, in our workplaces. We need to display the glory of Christ as we live together among other Christians. God has gathered His children to help them follow Him. It's what He's doing and why we need one another. God is also here to help those who are weak today. 
Maybe you've come with weak faith. Maybe you've come just really wrestling with your faith today. Friend, I just want to remind you of God's grace to his disciples. He was patient with them. And he will be patient with you. Don't quit. Don't give up. Maybe today you don't feel like a Christian. Maybe today you're struggling with your faith. You're struggling to trust in the promises of God. He's patient. He's patient with you. Yes, you're not who you want to be. Yes, you look into the future and you say, man, I want to be, I, I, I so want to follow Christ better. He's patient with you. He's saying, come. He's saying, follow me. It's okay. I'm with you in this. I'll get you through this. I won't leave you. I won't abandon you. I will hold you fast. What great promises we have in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Christ and these grand promises that you have given us in Christ. Father, may we be gripped by your power today that you can, in the midst of desolation and desperation, bring a satisfying word. You can feed us today. We can feast on your word. And I pray that we have feasted well on your word today. That we leave with the confidence of the power of God in the midst of our difficulty. That we can trust you. That we can rely on you. That you will not abandon us. You will not leave us. You will not let us go. And we praise you, O Father. I pray today for that, 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 that brother or sister who is, who is weak in their faith today, who's, who, who's ready to quit. I, I just sense that they're ready to give up on life. Walk away from it all. Father, I pray that you would just remind them of these precious promises. That Christ is enough. That Christ will satisfy. Father, may we treasure Christ today in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's